Rusty Quill presents. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sometimes I think of people as bells ringing on a foggy night. They are all different and distant, ringing to their own timber. Some are golden and light. Others are solemn, iron things, whose peeling thrum falls slow and cold over the land. It's not easy to traverse the fog on the way to them holding an ear up to the cold night and still trying to keep your eye on the uneven ground before you. For some people, the stress of those first meetings, of finding the voice behind the bell in the fog, is too great to bear. And so they don't bear it, and choose instead to live alone. Hello, my name is Tyler Bell and you're listening to The West Side Fairy Tales an anthology of short horror and dark fiction stories written, read, and produced by me. Today's story is the second half of a two-part tale. If you haven't listened to the first part, stop here and listen to Ghost Story Part 1 from last month. I'll give you a second so you don't run into any spoilers. Last episode, we left the subject of our story, a young man named Barden on his lonesome in his hermitage of a flat in Paris. He's been bothered by strange knocking from the apartment downstairs, and visions of some pale-faced apparition that may or may not be a symptom of his self-imposed isolation. Barden is a man who likes solitude, not because he enjoys it, but because it suits him, and he's afraid of trying anything else. But he started hearing the first low peals of bell song in the foggy Parisian night, and soon he may find the call of at least one of those long and lonely notes too enticing to ignore. Before we get to today's story, I want to tell you about a couple of things I enjoy. If you're new here, every month I select a book and a random bit of horror, a movie, a video game, or something else that I think you listeners might be interested in. This month's book is The House of Sand and Fog by André Dubus III, a somewhat comfy tale about two people destroying each other's lives through their own inability to address their egos. One, a former drug addict, is kicked out of the eponymous house by the county she lives in over a misunderstanding regarding unpaid taxes. The new owner and second main character, an exiled former Iranian military commander, exists as a foil to the woman's attempts to get her house returned to her. This conflict sets the stage for a tragedy that tears both of their lives and the lives of those they love to pieces. I can't really talk too much more about the plot without giving away any spoilers, as the plot itself is fairly straightforward. Where this book really shines is in the character development and the complex interconnections between all the individuals and how they play out. I really like this book, and I highly recommend it. I'll leave a link for you to learn more about it in the episode description. Now, on to today's story, Ghost Story, Part 2.
winter was crushing. He found himself checking on Miss Mansoor more and more often, even when she didn't make a request of him via the messenger program. He left the apartment only for cigarettes and groceries, and guiltily promised to find every one of the butts he'd tossed out the garret window when he used a coffee cup as an ashtray one day and saw how quickly it filled. His wine bottles were also piling up too high in the corner, and he promised himself to stop filling the gutters of his body with that stuff as well. All his free time was spent with the booming, melodic voice of Riggs Colton as the man powered through what was turning out to be a massive book. They were already something like 14 hours into it, and with Colton's irritating need to turn every line of dialogue into several takes, each minute of finished recording needed something like six minutes of work to complete. It was exhausting. Thankfully, Melanie had sent him the copy Marimore wanted him to record, and he could spend the day doing that, instead of listening to Colton read the story. It wasn't that the story was bad. It was quite good, in fact, and familiar. The main character had discovered she could visit different possibilities by going from one part of the house to another in a certain way, so that she emerged in a timeline where her husband hadn't left, or where she'd married somebody else, or he had, or they'd never met and somebody else lived there. Every night she would wake back up in her real life. Nothing ever changed, it seemed, but the nightly trips were clearly having an ill effect on her health both mentally and physically. Barden honestly had fallen in love with the story, if not the narration. Colton's recitation was almost perfectly wrong for the woman, Ami Hiroshiko, a Japanese woman living in the American Northwest. She seemed like such a quiet, somber woman, but Colton read every line like bombastic, tongue-in-cheek gothic theater. Barden constantly found himself waiting for punchlines that never came. He finished his wake-up workload, a checklist set beside his desk that helped him keep up with his housekeeping, both literally and figuratively. Mostly, it was just answering emails and filling out this form or that on the internet to keep his bills paid. On occasion, there were letters of interest from other studios seeking to poach him from Marimore or at least get him to work on this or that project. He flicked quickly through all these notes from the outside, working them down like a tough, tasteless steak on his way to dessert. Melanie's email. He opened it and set his desk up for recording work. Mostly it was just making sure all the loud electronics were either off or set so they wouldn't suddenly start making noise. He put the blanket up in the window snuffing out the twinkling stars of Paris at midnight, and turned on his microphone. Even at the very start, there was a problem. Something was making noise in the room. A subtle, irregular burr that caused the occasional errant pip to rise on the otherwise flat line of the waveform image. He shook his head and followed all his wires from source to feed and back again with his fingers tightening and resetting all the cord heads solidly into their ports. The sound had only gotten louder. He took his headphones off and listened to his apartment. There was only that static, non-noise of utter darkness and quiet, the sound which rested atop all the universe like a blanket, muffling only the softest vibrations of blood in his veins, the scratch of the hairs growing in your eyebrows. He strained his ears in the dark, his face a ghostly island of light before the dull glow of his monitor. He slid the headphones back over his ears. They were the large, over-ear kind you only ever bought from catalogs or the internet. Expensive, ugly things with boring names composed of nonsensical alphanumeric designations. But they were powerful, had great sound, and, most importantly, they were comfortable. They also blocked out all the extraneous noise so he could hear only the information coming from his computer, leaving him in a state of absolute silence. He adjusted the mic closer to his face. The burr started up again. It changed shape sonically, 
became more of an extended warble than a simple, single note. The closest thing he could compare it to was the sound of water running over a roof, the way you might hear it if you put your ear directly to the wood on the ceiling underneath. He pulled one of the ear cups away from his head and could hear nothing in the room. Fuck! Barden whispered to himself. It had to be some sort of mechanical error with his microphone. He slapped the microphone and winced at the thump in his headphones as the angular black arm, so like a spring-loaded spider's leg, gently swung deeper into his room on the pivot anchored in his desk. The errant noise grew louder and sharper. He turned the volume to a comfortable level, then stood. The darkness in his room was no longer as absolute as it had seemed when he'd blocked out the window. City starlight bled around the edges of the blanket, joining the bluish light of his screen to paint the room in sullen grays. He squinted into the dark, parsing out the familiar shapes of his room. He found the softened, shadowed forms of what he knew were his dresser, his bed, his closet. Was there something there that shouldn't be? Certainly not. Of course not. He grabbed the armature at the base of the microphone and extended it into the room, holding the mic out like he was about to conduct an interview with darkness itself. His eyes adjusted and readjusted to the dark, the effect being that the weak gray light in the room seemed to be crawling down from the ceiling where it was brightest. Almost like a sludge, it oozed into place. The sound grew louder and crisper yet, so that he had to retreat to his desk and turn down the monitoring. Further clarified, the noise he was hunting now had a recognizable rhythm to it. It seemed simultaneously familiar and not. It lingered in his mind like a mote of dust in the eye, irritating him and demanding his attention. But try as he could, he couldn't quite place it. The armature reached its limit and Barden felt his desk shift behind him. A stuttering vibration rattled the floor beneath him, barely audible in his headphones. He cursed under his breath and brought the microphone armature into the light where he could work on it. A second later, he disconnected the mic and spooled out some of the 10-meter-long cable that connected it to his computer. He walked across the room with the microphone in hand holding it ahead of him and sweeping it back and forth like a Geiger counter. The noise clarified as he got deeper into the room, though it didn't get much louder. He'd preemptively turned the volume fairly low as a precaution anyway. He grunted as he smashed his shin into the cheap steel bed frame, bending down to rub it with the hand holding the microphone. A series of thumps from the apartment below followed and he rolled his eyes, all but freezing when he noticed the odd, errant noise got much louder with the microphone near the floor. Barden got down on his knees. He moved forward slowly over the floorboards, still sweeping the microphone back and forth, though cautiously as to avoid striking the bed frame with it instead of his shinbone. The dim red on light. The dim red on light in the microphone cast a fuzzy crimson disc that reminded Bardan of a searchlight. He made it all the way to the wall at the far end of his apartment, by the door. His fingers touched the hot steel of the floor vent and recoiled. His apartment was never expressly hot, but somehow the grates always managed to overheat until you couldn't touch them. He put the microphone over the vent and recoiled again. The noise had doubled in intensity. He set the mic aside and pulled off his headphones. Again, nothing. Barden shook his head in confusion. There was no explaining this. He put the headphones on once more and froze. His hand hovered slowly closer to the grate. There was the noise of air rushing through the vents, of course, but that was only the steady undertone to what he was hearing. The rest was a woman's voice unmistakable, slowly reciting something in verse as if from memory. He recognized the unsteady cadence of somebody trying to remember something, and occasionally making it up, as they ran through a familiar old rhyme. He looked up at the wall over his head, 
trying to find a light switch with his free hand. The other still held the microphone over the register. The woman's voice was so loud it was like her lips were all but pressed to the microphone, but given how low he'd turned the thing, he could hold it next to a speaker column at a hard rock show and not blow out the recording. He flicked the light on and looked down and screamed. There was a face below him, porcelain white and dark featured, eyes nothing but pits, pressed against the register so that the grate itself was pushed partly up out of the floor. He screamed and fell back on his ass. He leapt to flick on the lights before whipping back toward the grate with the microphone held overhead like a club. But there was nothing. The metal vent sat still and undisturbed in the floor. Underneath him, he heard the familiar thump, thump, thump on the ceiling of the downstairs apartment. And that was all he could hear. Nothing came through the line from the microphone. He checked and saw his headphones were still plugged into it. The line ran unbroken back to the computer. He followed it all the way to the monitor and found his editing program still set to record. He moved the playhead back five minutes. For most of it, he heard only the muffled noises of the trek across the room and the pained, embarrassed thump of him hitting his shin against the bed frame. The loud sound he'd followed was completely gone, even though it had all but deafened him at points. But then, as if from the bottom of a well, he heard something else, something almost incredible. A woman's voice, slowly and carefully reciting a poem. So slow fades the winds on the summer we spent, gathering flowers twixt our pages. We press them tightly, so flat and softly colored, until by chance they are found again. The voice trailed off, and he reset the playhead for another pass, straining to listen. It was even softer this time, and shot through a static so badly he could barely hear the second verse. The recording faded with every playthrough, softer on the third, and so quiet by the fourth he could barely make out any words at all. Every pass of the playhead was like the sweep of an eraser over a blackboard leaving only the faintest memory of what was written there. A palimpsest of meaning drawn as much from one's own imagination as the lingering traces of intent. In the end, Barden made another pass of his garret and even shone his utility light down into the vent. He found he could see all the way down to the dusty floorboards of the apartment below his, but there were no faces no phantom recitations of half-remembered poetry. Only the shadows and silence he supposed had always lingered there. And so, lacking any explanation for what he'd seen, or thought he'd seen, and not wanting to seem like a madman by spreading the story around the building, Barden went back to work as though nothing had happened. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It continued that way for weeks, though never quite as direct as the first time. He was seeing something, or insane, and neither possibility was one he planned to embrace. The odd electrical interference, the equally strange noises, both seemed to find their way onto all the recordings he worked on now regardless of whether he laid the tracks in his garret. 
and most he didn't. The majority of his working hours were spent on the Merrimore Studios book, which was finally near finished. The last long chapter had come on Christmas Eve, with the expectation that he wouldn't get to the thing until after New Year's, when all the world's working folk would go back to their jobs. He didn't have much to do, though, and so spent the day with his eyes bathed in light and ticking along to the rhythm of Riggs Colton murdering his way through an otherwise beautiful story. Snow had thickened on the rooftops outside of his garret, and a complimentary white haze fell through his window as he worked. The woman in the story had taken a turn for the worse in the third act. Her loneliness had gotten to her so badly she had started stalking one of her alternate selves. She thought that if she could kill the other her, somehow take that other woman's essence into herself, she'd find that she didn't have to wake in that cold, lonely bed that greeted her own real life every morning. And she succeeded, oddly enough, becoming one of those other women. At this point, Barden had to pause the playhead because of the banging on the floor beneath his feet. He slammed his heel down this time, feeling a rush of embarrassed heat raising the hairs on the back of his neck. He half expected the wraith in the apartment below his to float up through the vents and strangle him, but there was little more reaction than a huffy pulse of static between two tightly packed words. He rolled his eyes. The woman in the story had found that the life she'd slipped on like a second-hand dress didn't fit so well as she'd like, and she grew bored of the man she'd so badly missed in her own true life. But she found she couldn't return to her old self, and so she moved to a new life where her man was more fun and direct. But that life didn't fit either, and neither did the next few and soon the woman was lost in a maelstrom of interconnected houses and timelines. She soon found she couldn't leave the grounds at all, and that she couldn't show her face to company, to anybody really. Every killing, every new life changed her bit by bit until she no longer enjoyed the warm sunlight in her old reading room, until she found she liked dark corners and the shadows beneath and behind, the places eyes couldn't reach. Her incessant web-weaving and indecision had made a spider of her. A spider with a crooked, lonely web none dared to visit. Bardin hit save, closed the program, and rested his fingers against his temples, glad to finally be finished with the thing. And that's how it ends, Miss Mansoor asked, taking a sip of her hot chocolate and hissing when she found it too hot. She set the cup down on the saucer and turned back to Barden. Her apartment was immaculate, with white marble floors and flourishing gold trim somehow on the corners of everything. But it was a cold place, empty like a hospital waiting room, and filled with the sort of things nobody ever wanted at a yard sale. Plastic plants and ugly throw pillows. I suppose. Barden shrugged. He took a sip of his own hot chocolate and found it too hot as well. Miss Mansoor gave him a look as if to say, What, did you think I was joking? He chuckled, despite himself. My theory is it's one of those open-ended type of things. He ducked his chin when he stuttered, looking around the room so she couldn't see his face. He let his eyes rest on the big plastic Christmas tree in the corner and wondered where she even bought the thing. Well, she said, waving her hand. That's why I don't read anymore. People can't just shut up and tell a story. She sighed and smiled at him. Her eyes vanished into a mass of wrinkles that matched the worn pink leather sofa. Thank you for coming down to have Christmas Eve dinner with me, but then, I know you don't like to be out. She reached over and patted his hand. He pushed his hair behind his ear. It's no, no problem, he said. I needed to get out of that room anyway. She invited him every year, but he'd only accepted just this once. Partly because he couldn't think up an excuse, he was too tired for anything clever, and partly because he had a very specific question to ask her. 
I've been meaning to ask you something, Miss Mansour. He started, choosing his words carefully. She raised her eyebrows and he tapped his thumbs together, then asked her, Is there somebody living in the apartment below mine? Miss Mansour's eyes rolled and she shook her head. Are those rats acting up again? She asked. He opened his mouth but said nothing. She stood and raised her hands, palm down toward him. Now, I won't bullshit you. There are rats in the building sometimes. They seem to plague that room. Miss Mansour, Barden started, but she raised her hand again. Barden, I will knock off fifty. No, seventy-five francs off your rent if you stay, she said. You're a good boy, and I'd hate to see you go over something foolish like this. She straightened and popped the small of her back with her hand. I have the traps. I'll go get them, and you can put them up there for me. She paused on her way to the kitchen. For this, I'll knock off an extra ten. No, fifteen for the month. But just this month. Okay, I'll get the traps. Barden watched her waddle away into the kitchen. He sipped his cocoa, not really knowing what else to do. The whole time, she kept talking. I can't get anybody to stay in that apartment, you know, she said, her every word accompanied by a cacophony of clattering metal and porcelain. The last full-time tenant paid my father rent, not me. Some lady poet. She moved out long before your time. Barden sat at the edge of his seat. Suddenly worried he'd hear the clattering steel avalanche that would spell the end of Miss Mansour. Thankfully, it never came. A poet? Bardan asked Miss Mansour as she trundled into the living room with a paper sack of rat traps dragging along the ground behind her. Oh yes, she used to be a regular at the parties father would throw in the basement, she said. They were all bohemians and hippies, a lot of Americans. She waved her hand around her head like she was fanning away a bad smell. That was a long time ago. Nobody ever visits now, unless they have to. She shrugged and handed Barden the traps. Then she fished around in the pocket of her blue sweater and brought out an impressively large key ring. She fiddled with it and pulled off a copper-colored key of a slightly nicer make than the one that led to his room. She tossed it to him and chuckled when he fumbled it out of the air. The lettering on the side read 3B in crooked, hand-stamped letters. He nodded and slipped it into his shirt pocket, then went back to his hot chocolate. They talked until Miss Mansour began nodding off mid-conversation. He left her asleep on the couch, pushing the exit lock on the door and hauling the bag of traps with him as quietly as he could manage. He left the traps just inside the entrance of 3B. The room he stepped into was wide and empty, the plaster ceiling high and fairly ornate. The design, somewhat faded by time, was of thousands of birds in flight past one another. The city lights reflected off the low sky and the thick snow outside to fill the room with dull twilight white. A large picture window at the far end of the apartment provided most of the illumination. Dust motes floated through the suspended silver beam there, which itself fell over an old high-backed chair. A short table sat beside that, alongside a partner chair that rested outside the light. She sat in the taller of the chairs, the high black collar rising up beside her cheekbones. Her fingers were long and thin and rested alongside her face, disappearing into hair as dark or darker than her clothing. She turned to him, only slightly, and beckoned with the curling of her fingers. He sat in the open chair and found himself looking at anything but her face. It wasn't real. Even if she weren't what she was, it wouldn't be a real face. It was something like a mask. Hard and enamel smooth, the mouth was a harlequin slash of a smile beneath blotchy, hollow eye sockets. There was no nose, but instead a rounded lump of the same smooth material. 
raised eyebrows and the same shape as the mouth finished out the entirety of the mask's features. I'm sorry, she said. I've been very rude lately. I suppose, Bardan replied. Do you live here alone? He watched her fingers slide along her cheekbone and down to her chin. They pinched the mask there and it slid up to reveal a pair of soft, pink lips. They parted, hesitantly, and then smiled. Her teeth were white and slightly sharp at the incisors, though not threatening. Yes, she said, though live is generous. The mask slid back into place and her fingers with it, though they now lay alongside her opposite cheek. Her head tilted to rest in her palm. There is a secret sort of existence in this universe reserved for the passionate. I was passionate. I lived for what I desired most. She flicked her fingers, and the great picture window became a mirror that reflected the inside of the apartment, though the scene was better lit and far better furnished. A slender woman in a dark dress twirled in the arms of a somber-looking man with tired eyes and a sad, stubbled beard. She was absolutely beautiful, and she knew it, though she clearly had eyes only for the man. He had eyes only for her, too, it seemed, though his expression was pained. They vanished, and once again there was the cold, and the snow, and the soft gray light. Him? Bardan said, looking back to the woman. The mask tilted to the side, revealing a green eye turned up from a grin. Yes, she said. And no. The mask slid back again, and she adjusted her position so that her legs were crossed at the knee in front of her. She reclined slightly. The dark fabric fell away to show a pale stretch of her calf. Bardin swallowed and kept his eyes on the mask. She rotated her foot slowly, pensively. Love. Love is what I wanted, she said. I heard a love story when I was, I think, eight years old. About the moon following the sun through the sky like a lovesick puppy thinking the sun was always running away from it and how the sun was always just trying to find the moon in the first place. Four fingers splayed across the mask and pulled it down so that Barden could see both of the woman's eyes. They glittered at him playfully. Do you like love stories? She asked. He shrugged and the mask flicked back into place. He'd wanted to say something, anything, really but he was so damn nervous. There, nice, I guess, he said slowly, forcing himself not to stammer. The woman adopted a more casual pose, and the calf disappeared into the black. They are nice, she said to herself as much as him. And I loved them, those love stories. I poured myself into romance, Tristan and Isolde, Macbeth and his lady. Anything I could find, I read. And when that wasn't enough, I began to write. She turned her head bashfully, putting her hand on her forehead so the mask slid up past her mouth. Her teeth shone in a broad smile and she laughed, tilting her head back. It was all really quite terrible. Stupid. Pedestrian. Girly. Her grin faded but the mask stayed where it was. But I forced myself to fight on, she said. Her hand relaxed, and the mask slipped a touch further, and he could see the corner of her eye looking at him. I demanded the love from the universe. I wanted it for myself, and I got it. I wrote things that broke hearts and mended them. Phrases men stole to impress women and couplets women borrowed to forget about those men. She sniggered. It was an ugly sound. And people began to love me, she said, the mask floating down to rest just above her frown. 
It was more love than I'd ever known. It came in baskets and letters, and handshakes and promises. It began so I didn't know a second without love. If love was a voice, I was a woman in a theater, being shouted at by the whole wide world. The mask was back in place. He came along when I was all the way at the top of the game, she said. Her voice was soft. The mask didn't waver. Just another author, one amongst the thousands I met every year, a severe man without a lick of fashion sense. She swallowed and turned her head away from Barden, but the mask stayed floating there in front of him, its harlequin eyes locked on his own. She sniffed and wiped her face with her free hand. Then the face was back in place behind the mask. He could tell jokes without blinking, completely deadpan, she said, chuckling. The mask remained steady, but her grinning mouth fell below it for a second. I couldn't resist him. I had demanded love from the universe, and the universe had put it in my lap. She took a breath. But that wasn't enough. My passion wasn't. I had come to understand, for love, but in the demand of love, the power. She swallowed again, and a tear dripped from the chin behind the mask. We began to drift apart, she said. He became successful in his own right, and busy, though he always had time for me. I couldn't say the same for myself. We dated, and I was always away. We married, and I was always away. No matter the season, I was on the hunt for more love, more adoration. I wanted eyes on me, eyes, adoring eyes, loving eyes. Without them, I was nothing. I was a farce. The mask trembled in her hand but remained steadfast. The top of her head dipped down behind it as she took a breath. You've been listening to a story upstairs, she said, regaining herself. She spoke carefully, like a woman treading the soft edge of a cliff. I recognized it. Even though it's been so long, he was one hell of a writer. Prose, if you can forgive him. She chuckled. I wanted to listen, too. Her long fingers flicked to the wall, and Barden followed them to where the woman herself was climbing up the wall like a disjointed spider. Her dress whipped through the air as though the currents were as thick as water, as distressed as the sea in a storm. And he could hear Riggs Colton's voice booming down into the apartment, telling the story. The woman on the ceiling listened and curled up on herself, her dress falling flat around her as though up had become down. He watched as the pain of listening crushed her in on herself, and eventually she balled up a fist and slammed it against the ceiling. Thud. 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 The world spun as though he were drunk for just a moment before writing itself, and he was again looking at the mask. That story, she said, shaking her head. He wrote it for me. The mask slipped and she fumbled to grab it with both hands. Still, it fell, inch by inch, until he could see the face of the woman behind it. She was beautiful and mature, perhaps forty, and dark-featured. She looked at the inside of her mask as though she were reading a book inside. And I told him I didn't love him. That I, that I couldn't, because I was afraid. And we spent our lives alone and apart. She searched for something in the feathered porcelain of the mask. She found nothing, and instead looked to Barden's face. He worked his mouth uncomfortably, trying to find something to say, and failing. What do you see when you see me? She asked. Could you love me? 
I am a thing that has slipped beyond death. There is no end. Could you love me? What I wanted is forever beyond my grasp, but still I must grasp. There is nothing else. Could you love me? Could you, boy? I... I don't know if I can love anybody, Bardin said, shaking his head slightly. The solitary heat of a tear traveled down his face. His hand shook as he dried his cheek. He grabbed it with his other hand and forced both down into his lap, curling up around them. He felt sick. All the curious energy of this place, all the trepidation and the difficulty of speaking to this woman, had finally built up to the breaking point. I don't think anybody can love me, he continued, face to the floor. What would they love? What is there to me? I'm just another cigarette butt laying in the gutter, you know? The only place for me is what some better man designed to keep me in, to put me where I can't bother other people. He saw the woman's feet step into view, and before he could move, he felt the gentle coldness of her fingers against his neck. The thick black fabric of her dress, the thigh beneath it, pressed against his face. Without thinking, he wrapped his arms around her legs and cried. The flesh beneath that funerary silk was to him like a sun-warmed marble pillar, solid and inhuman. But still, there was something there. A man I knew, who was too good for me in this world and everyone in it, once told me there's not a soul on earth too dark for love, she said, tucking her fingers beneath his chin and raising his eyes to hers. The apartment was cold and empty beyond her, but like the thought of that marble pillar, it still held something worth holding, the last fleeting touch of warmth. A memory of the sun. Her eyes were green and bright and searching, and, looking into them, Bardin felt the swirl of heat in his chest he knew was love. The feeling was sudden and unremarkable, blinding, confusing, and all of the other foolish words you can heap on that sweetest sister of death. And in this realization, Bardin knew there was one person on earth that had never tried to love this deathless poet. She saw that knowledge in his eyes and turned her own away the mask slipping gently back into place. She helped him to his feet, then turned him to the door. It's time you go, Bardin, she said. You'll never find what you're looking for if you sit alone in your room all day. The searching's done outside. She laid her hand on his shoulder and squeezed. Women respect dedication, and you're a hard worker, so start with that. Just don't get caught up too much in your work. Your apartment isn't as nice a place to spend eternity as mine. He nodded and walked for the door, turning to look back only once before he shut it behind him. He caught only the faintest glimpse of those green eyes as the mask slid back into place, and the last he saw of the deathless poet in 3B was her hand coming up to rest a palm on the table by the empty chair a hand waiting for a partner that would never come. Snow thickens on all the avenues and boulevards of Paris, where lovers clutch cold hands and, laughing, force their way through the bitter chill of the wind to wherever lovers go. To the cafes and the bars and the galleries and all those havens of life and warmth whose windows steam and fog with comings and goings past the dozens and hundreds of children spilling out into the street to make war of all the white covering the ground, past the smiling parents who linger in the golden light just behind the doorways, watching and reminiscing and remembering a time when the cold didn't quite set so painfully in the joints. In the midst of all this, in the middle of Paris and maybe the world, a skinny man with dark hair and dark eyes steps out into the snow. His apartment building is one of a thousand in the city, as unremarkable and blanched as any of the others that fill the arrondissement. He turns his collar up against the cold and walks, passing as a ghost amongst the children and parents and lovers 
both seen and unseen. As he walks, a snatch of poetry follows him as a voice on the wind, soft and suggestive, and catching here and there in the ears of those he passes like a memory. So slow fades the winds on the summer we spent gathering flowers twixt our pages. We press them tightly, so flat and softly colored, until by chance they are found again. And sitting by the fire I can think of you when free from paper cages for the flowers of that far-gone September I spent with you, my friend. The man stops and raises his face to the sky, relishing the cold. There is a woman's name on his lips, and the taste of it is the taste of spring. That was Ghost Story, part two. What did you think? Love it? Hate it? Have you ever took a risk on a new relationship? Have you ever sat in palaver with a deathless poet and discussed the finer points of life and love? Let me know in the Westside Fairy Tales discussion group, which we call the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook. We have a regular page there under Westside Fairy Tales, but the Horror and Lit Club is a great place to talk with other fans about the episodes, the recommendations, and even start up your own conversations about horror and writing and whatever else comes to mind. You can also send me a message personally at westsidefairytales at gmail.com or hop on Twitter at WSFairyTales or Instagram at westsidefairytales. If you like the show, please take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes. I read literally every comment and it's a great way to help us rise through the ratings. We've been growing quite a bit lately, but we still have a long way to go and that minute or so you spend on iTunes could really make the difference for us. If you really like the show and uh, just want to send us some cash, then hop on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. We have tons of additional content for you to access there, basically upping your Westside Fairy Tales intake to four audio programs per month at the $5 level. For just a buck, you get early access to the regular show and access to update audio where I ramble and try to get you to laugh. You'll also get early access to the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club audio cast where I go in-depth on the month's book and random horror recommendations. If you're feeling real dedicated, you can even jump up to $10 and get merch and super early access to raw versions of the show, which can be released up to two weeks before the regular episode drops. And there's tons more I haven't gone into, so head on over to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales and see what we've got in store for you today. Next month's story marks the end of the first half of Season 3 of The West Side Fairy Tales. That's 25 regular episodes, and uh, what I also like to think of as the end of the first half of the goal I set myself when I started this podcast a little over two years ago. I promised myself I'd go for at least five seasons, come hell or high water, and Goddamn, if we're not halfway there. To my fans, both you newbies and recent arrivals, and you dieharders from back when I could barely get the damn audio to work, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you. Without you guys, I could never get this to work. Next month, I'll bring you the story of a man put into a terrible position, where he must become a monster, worse than a monster, in order to serve his country. I hope you'll join me on the first Friday of February for the next West Side Fairy Tale, The Gates of Heaven. Remember to rate and review us on iTunes if you get a second. And until next time, as always, stay safe out there. West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Episode artwork by Yui Breedlove. All content herein, copyright 2019, Tyler Bell.
Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused, Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Dark Fiction Podcast, due for release by Henlo Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.